This is They Create Worlds, episode 62, Lawsuits for Everyone. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, Alex, since you are a lawyer, technically... That's true. I do have a law degree, though. It should be pointed out here that I have never actually practiced law and did not focus in law school on intellectual property law. That's true. But you do know how to read law papers, lawsuits, court records, all that good stuff that your typical historian does not know. In theory. Only in theory. (laughs) But that means that we can look at all the lawsuits, Alex. All of them. We can look at them for copyrights, the horrors that Nintendo has done with lawsuits, and those other companies, too. That's right. Certainly, as with any other medium, the history of the video game industry has, in part, been shaped by lawsuits and legal matters and all of that kind of stuff. We, of course, talked in depth once already about the law when we talked about the Magnavox suits, and those not only helped set the course of how the video game industry would develop, but it even led to the rise and fall of companies because Activision, for instance, was nearly destroyed by that patent litigation. Today, though, we're not going to do patent suits. Today, we thought we would focus on another area of the law, which is copyright. That's right. This is a subject that was originally suggested to us by a listener at my Mac on Twitter. Yes, in in a way. He pointed out an article that had like 11 video game lawsuits or something and, and said that this would be a great topic for the podcast. And he's right. Legal stuff is a great topic for the podcast. When we got looking at the actual article... We saw that some of the cases were a good fit for historical development because we are a first and foremost video game history podcast. And some of the others, even though they were still very interesting, didn't necessarily fit as well into the theme of the podcast. So using his excellent idea as a base and using the article he gave us as a base, we've kind of shaped a progression of legal cases that we can talk about in in a couple of more focused historical areas. This is going to be another two-parter episode. We're going to focus on specifically on copyright lawsuits that have gone on generally in the industry. And then in part two, we're going to look specifically at Nintendo because Nintendo was so instrumental in how they sued pretty much everyone with their lawsuits and really shaped the industry at a very critical point. Well, and it's not just that they sued people, but actually the most interesting lawsuits with Nintendo are the ones where they themselves were sued. They were very adept at using the courts to defend themselves. And that's going to be a lot of what we talk about in part two, some of the very big cases in the 1980s and early 1990s that they were a part of. Today, we are going to do copyright. Now, copyright is something that is really prevalent today with People suing people left and right for copyright infringement in regards to music and videos. That's how most people usually see the whole copyright thing these days. Sure. 
especially with the uh, DMCA and all of that with YouTube and Twitch and what have you. Mm -hmm. But we're going to focus a little bit more on the game side of it, where there is a history of anti-piracy with video games and copyright. You've had the ancient ways of you had to add a manual and look up this word on paragraph 12 of this book, so on and so forth, in order to get past and unlock whatever. Sure. Though what we're really going to be looking at today is lawsuits related to when companies were ripping off other companies. We're not something be... you don't really think about. Mm-hmm. Especially in the early days of the industry, we've talked before. I mean, we've done uh, several episodes on the arcade now. We've talked before about how the arcade industry is very much a copy a hit idea kind of world. To a degree, companies can get away with that. That's why you had the Pong market where there were a million Pong clones. You had all the shooting games that followed after Space Invaders. This is the way that industry has always operated. And then the question becomes, how much can you protect an idea like a Pong or a Space Invaders or an Asteroids or all of these hit things that are going on? One way to do that is copyright. Now, it's necessary to talk a little bit about copyright generally. And again, I want to stress, I am not an intellectual property lawyer. So this is going to be very basic and it's not about perfectly explaining how these laws work. A a lawyer listening to this might hear something I say and be like, "Uh, no, that's not actually quite right. And if so, that's fine. But we'll get the gist across. So copyright is applied to the expression of an idea. You can't copyright an idea. If you have a unique groundbreaking idea, you patent it. You can't copyright a character or a place or a word. Mario is not copyrighted. Mario is trademarked. Tapping in card games is not copyrighted by Wizards of the Coast slash Hasbro. It's trademarked. Copyright is specifically for the expression of an idea. It's for a creative work. It's something that you've written down. It's something that you've filmed. It's something that you've expressed in some way, shape, or form. In video games, it gets a little bit complicated because there's various aspects to video games. On one level, video games, once the microprocessor hit, and all the games that we're talking about are going to be microprocessor era games, video games are coded. So there is an expression of an idea there. When you're typing something out in BASIC or C or Python or whatever the heck you're using, you are stringing together characters in a unique way to do something that no one else has used those characters to do. Just as if you're writing a book using the English language, you're putting letters and words together in a unique way to express a unique idea. So you've got code, but then you've also got the end result of that code because there's an abstraction layer. If you're reading a book, it's the words that you are actually experiencing. You are forming a picture in your mind by reading the words on the page. If you take the code of Defender and just read the code, you don't play Defender that way. It won't do anything for you. I mean, if you're a programmer, you can see what tricks they're doing, but it doesn't do anything for you. You don't get the adrenaline rush of Defender by reading its code. Unless you're a very specific kind of coder. (laughs) That's right. So there's also the 
processes that occur in the hardware because of the code. And that is what appears on the screen. That is similar in concept to a movie or a record, a song that you're listening to. But the difficulty here is that a movie is what in copyright law is called fixed in a medium. What that means is when you've shot a film and that film is on film, it's all digital today, but that idea, that expression of that idea has been fixed in that film strip. And if you make copies of that film strip and send it to theaters all around the country and all around the world, every single person is going to experience the exact same thing when they sit down to watch that movie. The idea has been fixed in the medium of film. That makes sense, right? It does. And it's sort of like with music, you have a score, a sheet of music that has however it's being played. And then I give that to my orchestra or musician or whatever, and they play it. We record that. And that recording is the expression of that Mm -hmm. music. Sort of like the with the movie, it's a script. And the script is then expressed onto film. Right. And then I think if we're going to extrapolate this further, you have code, which is equivalent to the script or the sheet music. And then it is expressed as the compiled code or the executable that is actually the program itself that runs, that is our game. But here's the problem. Is a video game fixed? Because if you sit down at the arcade and play Defender, and then I sit down at the arcade and play Defender, we are not going to have the exact same experience. Every playthrough is different because the player is acting upon it. It's interactive. I'm pressing the fire button at different times. I start out going left where you start out going right. I run into a swarm of enemies that corner me on the top of the screen. You run into a swarm of enemies that corner you on the bottom of the screen. I don't let any of my men get captured for 10 minutes. You let 50 of your guys, not that you can, but just exaggerating, 50 of your guys get captured in the first two minutes. It's not necessarily fixed. So this is where the very early copyright law in the United States focused. By the 1976 Copyright Act, computer code was recognized as an expression that could, in fact, be copyrighted. If you took a Space Invaders cabinet and you ripped the code out of the ROMs and you exactly reproduced Space Invaders and called it Space Monsters and put it in an arcade, you would be in trouble because you have used the exact same code. That's a no-no. Code is protected. But what happens if you see Space Invaders in the arcade? You think, oh, that looks kind of cool. You study the way the game works. You reproduce the game basically exactly, but you do it with your own code. Sort of similar to how maybe originally they coded it in C, and I see that it's really interesting. I want to recreate this game, but I only know how to program in Python. So I recreate Defender in Python, even though the original is in C. Right. But even if you're using the same programming language, if you program it from scratch, you're probably going to organize your code in a different way. Certainly, you can have different ways that you have your header files and your 
function layout and your calls, or maybe instead of it being a 30 frame per second game, it becomes a 60 frame per second game. Mm -hmm. So at that point, the 1976 copyright law, which is what was in effect at the time of the cases that we're talking about, the 1976 copyright law didn't necessarily protect your game after you got to the point where somebody wasn't directly ripping off your code. Then it becomes a question of whether a video game is actually fixed in the legal sense when you're playing it on the screen. If you took the latest Stephen King book and just rewrote it very closely, rearranging all the words, but the plot is exactly the same and the characters are exactly the same, but you've just changed a few names and changed a few locations and, and used different words to express the same thing, you would still be running afoul of copyright because Stephen King fixed his expression in book form and you are ripping off his book, even if you've changed a little bit of it. But when it comes to video games, if the underlying code is completely different and you've just got something that plays almost exactly the same, but using completely different code, then it's not exactly clear, especially at the dawn of this stuff when video games were brand new, whether you had any kind of case there because you don't have what's going on on the screen is not necessarily protected by copyright, just the underlying code is, if that makes sense. It does make sense, and it's a really murky, hard thing to really pin down. Where is that line of, I'm creating this game, and I'm trying to make it similar to, let's say, Defender or Space Invaders. What point is it different enough that it's its own unique game versus being a copyright infringement thing? A good example would probably would be Space Invaders. Space Invaders was very, very popular and was a great, fantastic game. Then someone looked at that and said, okay, that's awesome. I want to do more with that. And then we get Galga. And that's very similar to Space Invaders, but different. At what point is it different enough from being Space Invaders that I'm not running afoul of copyright versus okay, I changed it a little bit so that the aliens are instead of being aliens, they're now microphones and I'm shooting sound waves from a speaker down below. Right. First to unpack that, something like Galaga is definitely okay under the law. The reason for that is what we talked about before. You can't copyright ideas. You can only copyright expressions of an idea. Spaceship at the bottom of the screen, other spaceships at the top of the screen, they're shooting at you, you're shooting at them. That's an idea. That's a concept for a game. The expression of the idea in Space Invaders is specifically, there are these rows of aliens, they move down the screen in solid lines, uniform lines. You have four bunkers that are protecting you, there's a flying saucer that flies across so you can shoot for bonus points. That's the expression of the idea. That's what's copyrightable. Galaga is your ship's at the bottom of the screen. There are no bunkers, no protections like that, no flying saucers. Ships are flying in these crazy patterns and then ending up in formation at the top of the screen. They're shooting at you. You're shooting at them, but they're also diving at you as they shoot at you. And you've got these special ships that can use their tractor beams to capture you. So that is the same idea in a sense, as Space Invaders. 
but it is a different expression of that idea. That is different enough that it is a unique expression of the same concept, just in the same way that you can have a million heist movies or a million slasher movies or a million pirate movies or westerns. And they're not going to run afoul of each other in copyright because even though they may have some tropes that are in common amongst them, that are shared amongst everything in that particular genre, the specific expression is going to be different enough. We know that if you copy code exactly, if you just rip off code, just rip the ROM, put it in your own system, we know that's covered by copyright. We know that when you are expressing an idea in a different way, even if it's a similar idea, we know that that is protected by copyright. What we didn't know in the late 1970s and early 1980s was if you use different code to do essentially the exact same thing as another game, the exact same expression, is that a violation of copyright? And this is the area where you saw some of the first litigation. In the Golden Age, obviously, the so-called Golden Age in the early 80s, there was a lot of copying going on of hit game concepts. Because as we've discussed before, arcade games just took off so phenomenally that you couldn't meet demand. Demand was so high that supply just couldn't meet demand. And so there was very quickly a kind of counterfeit games movement that happened. What most of these counterfeit manufacturers would do is rather than create whole game cabinets, some of them did that, but rather than creating whole game cabinets, which would require a manufacturing line and all sorts of craziness, what they would do is create kits. And we talked about kits in our arcades after the crash episode. And obviously, there's such a thing as a legitimate kit, too. Plenty of arcade games have come out as kits. But what we're talking about is companies that specifically made a new board you would either replace the old board in the cabinet or piggyback off a board already in the cabinet in order to create a new game experience of some kind. That meant that there was a lower overhead operation for the counterfeiter because they're not running a whole manufacturing line for wood. They're just creating circuit boards. And it's a way of making the kits cheaper for the arcade operators. And so it becomes kind of this gray market. And it is a gray market. It's not an illegal market. A gray market means that it's not technically illegal, but it's of questionable legality. It's just nobody's bothered to figure out the legality of it. So you have this gray market where the, the operators are happy to buy some of these kits because it gives them basically the same experience as the hit game, but at a cheaper price. You know, their main manufacturers aren't able to keep up with their demand anyway, so sometimes this is the only way you can get as many copies of Space Invaders or Defender or Pac-Man or what have you that you want. Plus, when it comes specifically to the add-on boards that sometimes speed up the game or subtly change the games, it's a way to keep a game fresher longer because once all of your customers have mastered the basic game, then you can put in a speed-up board which is literally just a piggyback board that goes on top of the original game and makes all the gameplay faster. You know, you can do something like that, and then all of your people that have already mastered the game, and so it's old hat to them, will come back and be like, oh, it's that game I used to love, and now it's harder, so I can challenge myself with it again. So you had both of these things going on. The 
upgrade kits to existing games and just the straight old pirated kits where we are creating the code from scratch. So it's different code and we're giving it a different name, but it's essentially the same game. So the first couple of landmark cases that we're going to talk about here are related to that. And they actually both involved the very same company, a company called Arctic International. This was very much a gray market kind of company. This was not a legitimate coin-op manufacturer, but they were making enhancement boards for existing games, and they were making kits that were basically the same as already existing games. So both of the areas that we were talking about. They got involved with court cases related to both of those things. So the first of these cases with Arctic was actually brought by Williams Electronics, and it actually related to Defender, because Defender was a huge hit, as we certainly talked about in our Williams episode. Tens of thousands of units sold. Everyone wanted to play it. So there was this company, Arctic, that actually created a circuit board that had ROM with the computer program that was essentially the same as Defender. The game was called Defense Command, and it was basically the exact same game. But as we said, executed using different code. I'll try to find some examples of both Defender and You may not find any video of Defense Command. (laughs) I would be shocked if there was any out there. These kind of gray market games did not survive in the marketplace. Really? Yeah. Okay. But I'll try to. Yeah, you can try to find what you can find, but I'd be shocked if you actually found something. Anywho, the important thing is that these were basically the same game. Now, if this were a movie, if somebody went out and shot a movie and it was essentially the same movie, but they changed some characters and You know, maybe they crash a boat instead of crashing a car or something, you know. If it was really, really close and there would be legitimate confusion in the marketplace between the two of them, then that is definitely a violation of copyright. The interesting thing with video games is what we just talked about a second ago. Are computer games, are video games fixed in the ROM? Is that an audiovisual expression that is fixed in the ROM of the game? The argument the companies were using, like Arctic, was that it is not fixed because of interaction with the player. It changes. Every single time you play, it's different. And it's different because the player is manipulating it. It's not different every time because it's like a choose-your-own-adventure and you're doing a branching plot. That would still be fixed because there's still a finite number of outcomes that have been specifically written or scripted by the original creator. That's a complete expression. But in Grand Theft Auto, the creators of Grand Theft Auto 3 did not fix an expression where you go on a shooting rampage with the first gun that you find. That's something that you decide to do as the player, and the other player might decide to go in and do missions right away. Completely different ways of playing the same game. And the argument was that because the player can have so much influence on what happens, that the audiovisual work in this case, the video game is not fixed. And if it's not fixed, then it's not protectable by copyright. Does, do you follow that? I follow that. I also think it's interesting how you said, especially with the movie, that it creates confusion in the marketplace. And I think that's a really interesting argument where we can say, all right, fine, you're copying this game. How you do that is immaterial. Is the end result. Yes. And that is something, it's, it's good that you latch onto that, because that is something that we are going to talk about in one of our other cases that we mm-hmm. discuss uh, just a little later on. 
So we'll be coming back to that point. So that's a, that's a good sneak preview. So in, in this case, the court decided that, yes, it doesn't matter that the player is interacting with the objects because there is still a finite audiovisual expression contained within the ROM. Yes, things may happen in different orders. Yes, the player may go left first instead of going right. But the player's actions are still contained within the expressive work that is the video game. You can decide to start Defender by going left instead of going right, but you can't suddenly decide that you're landing on the planet and driving a moon buggy. So it's almost like a Choose Your Own Adventure, which you said is copyright because it has a finite permutationable expression of where you can go. Except with Defender or the like, we can have that be the case where I have more of those choices, but it's still ultimately finite. Right. So what the court said is that the fixation requirement of copyright is met when the work is sufficiently permanent or stable to permit it to be reproduced or otherwise communicated. So Defender is going to be Defender each time. You, you know what the goal of the game is. If someone is going to teach you how to play Defender, anyone who teaches you how to play Defender is going to teach you how to do the exact same actions. It might teach you in different order, or one person may know a trick that the other person doesn't know, but playing Defender doesn't change every time you come up to Defender. And every single Defender machine, not counting manufacturing defects or something, is going to play exactly the same. Pretty much you are going to be flying around. Whether or not you go left or right is immaterial. You're still going to be shooting out enemy spaceships and you're still trying to save the people on the ground. When what order you do that by going left or right, up or down, doesn't matter. The ultimate goal is still the same. So we're focusing more on the destination, not the journey. Exactly. As long as you have communicated an idea and as long as that idea is explainable, and as long as it's going to be the same in every iteration of it you play, then you have a complete expression of an idea. And it doesn't matter that players of different skill do things differently. It doesn't matter that cutscenes may appear in a different order, depending on branching choices you make. None of that matters. It's fixed. That may sound obvious to you and me. I mean, we've grown up with video games. People our age have grown up with video games. They've been around our entire lives. So, of course, it's a copyrightable expression. I mean, of course, it's no different from a song or a movie. Why would it be? But whenever there's a new technology, there's always that period of time when people are looking for the loopholes. Because the 1976 Copyright Act was written in a time that while video games did exist, video games were not a very prevalent medium. So Congress was not writing the copyright law of the time in a way that took into account the unique characteristics of video games. So sometimes language that applies to one medium doesn't perfectly describe another medium. And then guys like Arctic try to come in and find a loophole and see, well, you see, it's not really fixed because it changes every time somebody plays. But it's like, no, that's really not what fixed means. Fixed just means that it is a complete expression of an idea that is explainable, communicatable, and reproducible. But you have to have the legal case that defines that language. That's, that's how our legal system works. It's very much going down to the nitty-gritty of how do I define this word, and we have one word of what's fixed, and we have 
reams and reams of paper to describe what fixed means in this specific case. Exactly. So Arctic lost that one. Yes, Arctic lost that one. And this was the case that in the United States, there was actually another case that happened in the same year. Uh, Midway also took a different company called Omni to court that reached the substantially same conclusion. Won't go into that case in detail. It's just another case that was on a similar thing. So between the two of them, those cases established in U.S. law that, yes, a video game is copyrightable as an expression. So even if you're not using the code, the audiovisual expression or presentation of a video game is still copyrightable. So if you create something that is essentially exactly the same game, even if you did not use the same code, then you're in trouble. Now, like I said, that still leaves a lot of room for copying. Because Space Invaders and Galaga are two very different expressions of the same idea. As you know, even with that ruling, there have still been tons and tons of clones out there. But as long as the clones are making some substantial changes to the audio-video expression, then it's the same idea, but it's a different expression of that idea. And so you can't do anything about that based on this part of copyright law. We're going to talk a little later about similarities. We're going to get there. but. This is the first one where we pretty much have locked out that, yeah, if you code a game to achieve effectively the exact same experience, that's a no-no. Mm-hmm. And then now we need to go further on and figure out, okay, where's that line of different enough? Exactly. Things have changed in that area a little bit over time. The very first kind of landmark case that dealt with this idea of substantial similarity was a case of Atari versus North American Phillips. I can't remember if we mentioned this. I think we did in our Magnavox litigation episode. But in 1974, Phillips, which is a Dutch electronics giant, purchased Magnavox. Magnavox video games from 1974 forward were actually products of Philips. And North American Philips is the North American arm of the Dutch company. And Magnavox continued to exist as a subsidiary for a while. Then it just became a label. But Magnavox products are actually, at the end of the day, Philips products. The Magnavox Odyssey 2 was Magnavox's answer to the Atari VCS and the other programmable systems of the day. It was released in 1978. It never did all that well. It was a distant fourth place. It was a distant third place. And then when Coleco came along, it was a distant fourth place. You know, Atari had like 70, 75% of the market, probably about 70% of the market. And then Intellivision had like 10 to 15% of the market. And so <laughs> not much room left for Magnavox there. It was always a, a small seller. And we're not going to get into the history of the Odyssey 2 right now or the Odyssey Squared, as it's sometimes called, I guess, because. The 2 is a superscript, Odyssey superscript 2. They never did big licenses. They never tried to do that kind of thing. And the strange thing is, is they often didn't even try to clone popular concepts. I mean, they did, just not as often as you would think. But they did, during the Pac-Man craze, decide to make their own version of Pac-Man or their own version of of the maze chase genre. That was a game that was called Casey Munchkin. 
I don't know if you've ever heard of that or are familiar no, with that. No, never heard of it at all. It's certainly the most well-known game that appeared on the Odyssey 2, as much as anything, I think, because of the legal trouble it got into. It's a dot-eating maze game. You are controlling little Casey Munchkin as he makes his way through a maze-eating dots and is trying to avoid monsters that are trying to stop him. There are certain special dots that you can eat that turn you all-powerful and allows you to turn the tables on the monsters. And the goal is to eat all the dots in the level to advance. So far, sounds exactly like Pac-Man, right? Yes, it does. But there are differences. Obviously, the graphics are changed. They're not going to use Pac-Man, in addition to the fact that that makes it seem more like the exact same expression of the idea, I wouldn't be surprised if Pac-Man is, as a character is trademarked. And so that would make it a double no-no. So, of course, it doesn't look like Pac-Man. And, of course, the monsters don't look like ghosts. So you do have the, that audio-visual difference. The maze is different. I mean, it's, they're not going to copy the exact same maze layout. But here's the thing that is really different. Those are just small differences. Those are the kind of differences that may not hold up in court. Aesthetic differences. Right. But the main difference is that there are only 12 dots in the level, and they move. Oh. So it's a dot-eating game, but it's not the same cover every square inch of the maze eating like 80 or however many it is dots. There are a small number of dots, and the dots actually move too, which creates different gameplay variants. It's actually pretty different, I would say, expression of the same idea. Because it's, it's dot-eating, but there's a lot of ways to do dot-eating. I mean, remember from our uh, Japanese arcade video games episode, there was head-on before there was Pac-Man. Mm-hmm. Pac-Man didn't start this dot-eating thing. They weren't being, quote-unquote, eaten in head-on, but you had a race car. And there were different lanes. It wasn't a full maze, but there were different lanes. And those lanes had dots in them. And you had to drive over the dots in all of the lanes while avoiding the other car. So it's not like Pac-Man invented the idea of the dot-eating maze game where you have to eat dots and avoid enemies even. There was a game before it. But I think it's fair to say that Pac-Man was the definitive expression of this kind of game. And there were clones of it in the arcade. There were games that made subtle changes. Um, There was Amadar from Konami, which made the change that you're kind of moving along a lattice instead of moving through a maze. So it's a little bit different. There's Mousetrap and Ladybug, both of which introduced the concept of gates, where you could press a button and gates would close. And so you could kind of control the maze and control how your pursuers can get to you by manipulating these gates while you're also doing the other collection. So there were other games that did similar gameplay to Pac-Man. Question is, where is that line? And in the specific case of Casey Munchkin, they thought it came too close. So Pac-Man, of course, is a Namco game. Mm -hmm. But Atari secures the home rights. We, of course, know we've talked about the very famous flickering Pac-Man cartridge. We talked about that in the context of the crash and whatnot. Yep. So Atari has the home rights to Pac-Man. And so Atari decides that they are going to go after every last company they can that is releasing a home game similar to Pac-Man. 
and they're going after stuff uh, both in video game systems and on computers. Uh, Sierra Online, online systems, has a game called Jawbreaker, which is basically a Pac-Man clone. They go after them for that game. They're going after everybody that has in the home a game that they feel is substantially similar to Pac-Man. And they decide that Casey Munchkin is one of those games. So that's why it's Atari that is suing North American Philips rather than Namco, because this is specifically related to the home. So this case hinges on the concept that you kind of hinted at before a little bit, which is the concept of substantial similarity. Substantial similarity basically goes to the idea that there is really no point to copyright law, to being able to copyright an expression if all somebody has to do is change two names and release the exact same manuscript and suddenly it's a new expression of the same idea. Then there might as well not be copyright law, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. theoretically... Copyright law is about stopping someone from creating or reproducing the exact same thing you made. But copyright law would be meaningless if we required an illegitimate copy to be exactly the same as the legitimate copy. Right. So substantial similarity comes down to this idea of how much of the two concepts are similar. According to the court in this particular case, Atari v. North American Phillips, the differences don't matter. What I mean to say by that is if you lift a huge number of concepts from one product, it doesn't matter if the rest of what you did is brilliantly, strikingly new. If you've stolen enough from the previous product... You've still stolen, and no amount of good can cancel out the bad. So the court actually went through and found a lot of differences between the games. I mean, they the judge probably didn't know much about video games because this was early days, but the judge was also not stupid. He can tell the difference between 80 or 100 or whatever dots and 12 dots. He can tell the difference between dots that stay in one place and dots that move. He can see that these are different things. But as far as the judge was concerned, there's still a maze. There's still dots in the maze. You're still controlling a character eating dots in the maze. The character is still avoiding other creatures in the maze. And the player has the opportunity to get a eat a special power-up that allows him to briefly turn the tables on his pursuers. So as far as the judge in North American Phillips was concerned, that was it. That did it. That means that there is substantial similarity between the two games because so much of the expression is the same. Doesn't matter if Casey Munchkin in practice, in the way you play it, plays completely differently. Because the good stuff that you do doesn't cancel out the bad stuff that you do. A right and a wrong don't make a right. So in this case, the court actually said, no, Casey Munchkin is definitely an infringement. And Phillips lost. Yes. There was another similar case in the arcades that reached kind of the same conclusion. It was more blatant than Casey Munchkin. I mean, a lot more blatant. But Stern Electronics had the rights to the Konami game Scramble. We, of course, talked about Scramble in our Konami episode, Scrolling Shooter, Big Hit. Stern had the North American rights, and another company, Kaufman, released a Scramble 2 that was essentially the same game. But 
more different from Scramble than, say, the Arctic Defense Command was from Defender or whatever. So they reached the same conclusion, but it was a lot more blatant in that case. This one is interesting because they are actually fairly different games. But the judge in this case, and I think this was a generational thing, the judge in this case decided that a player of a game is not paying attention to subtle differences in presentation like that. They don't care as long as a lot of the gameplay is the same. They don't care if it's slightly different. So the potential for confusion in the marketplace is just too great. It's kind of a bizarre decision, really. Because Casey Munchkin is a completely different game. Casey Munchkin is probably less similar to Pac-Man than Ladybug or Mousetrap are similar to Pac-Man. Nobody ever came after those games. Nobody ever took those games off the market. In part, that's because, you know, Atari wasn't suing them. But still, it's a kind of odd decision. And I think it's really just because of a a generational thing, because video games were so new. Because this would actually be revisited a few years later in 1985. And this time, the outcome was very, very different. So the Casey Munchkin case is an interesting stepping stone, an interesting footnote. But the real landmark case on substantial similarity is a case that happened in 1985 called Data East v. Epics. Data East and Epics, I think, are both companies we've mentioned at one point or another in the podcast. We have. Data East is the company that put out the game Karate Champ in the arcades. And we talked about Karate Champ both in the context of our Arcades After the Crash episode and in the context of our fighting game episode. This was the first substantially successful one-on-one fighting game, and it was in the form of a karate match. In the United States, it came out at that weird time where it didn't have as much of an impact because everything was falling apart. In Europe and in Britain, they went crazy for the game. I mean, it was successful in the U.S. too, but it wasn't ported to the home in kind of the same way. It did come to the home eventually, but it wasn't the big success in the home right away that it would become in Europe because it was released in a period of time when the home market was kind of all fallen apart. In the United Kingdom, there were a slew of karate and martial arts fighting games that came out kind of in 1985 and 1986 in that time period because of the popularity of Karate Champ. I mean, it was a big deal. One of those games was a game called International Karate. International Karate was produced by a company called System 3 in the United Kingdom. It was a deliberate move to cash in on the Karate Champ phenomenon. It was not strongly based on Karate Champ, as in they brought an arcade machine into the office and were like copying it move for move. But uh, the creator of the game, Archer McLean, had seen Karate Champ, and he did incorporate a couple of things from Karate Champ into international karate, not just the uh, fact that they're doing a karate bout, but also there was a bonus round where there's a charging bowl that you're avoiding, and, and he included that mini game in international karate. International Karate was licensed to Epics for release in the United States. Epics in this period of time was making a lot of deals with European companies to get content. So they brought the game over to the United States under the name World Karate Championship. Exact same game, just different name. 
for whatever reason, Data East never took action on international karate when it was out in the United Kingdom and when it was out in Europe. But when it came out of the United States as World Karate Championship, that got their attention. They sued because the games were very similar. You had two contestants in geese karate get up, one of which was kind of white in color and one of which was kind of reddish in color. You had the karate bout rules that were pretty similar, and you even had this bonus game, this bonus round that was pretty much identical. These games were definitely more similar to each other, I think it's fair to say, than Pac-Man and Casey Munchkin were to each other. At this time, we get a completely opposite result on substantial similarity. Because this time, Epix wins. It's not Data East that wins. Epix wins this one. The reason for this is because they come down on the opposite side of the second part of the test. As I told you uh, when we were talking about the Casey Munchkin case, the substantial similarity was definitely there. Because, as we said, just because there's also lots of new stuff doesn't cancel out the fact that some of the other stuff's similar. But then there's the confusion in the marketplace argument. That's the second part of the test. It's like, once you've established that they are substantially similar, does it matter? Is your copyright being diluted because somebody's going to go out and buy this other game because they can't tell the difference between your two games or, or something like that? Are they going to be tricked into buying a work that is a substantially similar copy of another work? The judge in the Casey Munchkin case decided that arcade goers are not caring about minor changes, what he considered to be minor changes. And so he thought the fact that there were fewer pills and they moved around or whatever, that didn't make a difference. But in this case, different judge decided that the things that were similar were largely similar because if you make a game with two karate contestants, there's always going to be a fair amount of similarity because karate has a fixed set of rules. And so this comes back to the idea of ideas versus expressions of ideas. So a karate bout is the idea. The game that you create based on that is the expression of the idea. And there's only so much variation you can have within a karate bout. So there's definitely going to be similarities either way. Now, there were still some elements that you couldn't explain away that easily. The scoreboard looked very similar in both. You had the bowl charging, the bonus game in both. Well, those things aren't necessarily going to be the same just because you do a karate match kind of thing, right? Right. But the judge decided on the second part of the test that when you look at the two games together, your average 17 and a half year old boy, that's what they used because that was kind of the average age, I guess, at that time, would not regard the works as substantially similar. They would be able to tell the difference between the two and they would be buying one game or the other based on the differences rather than the similarities. The North American Phillips judge decided that the players would be buying each game based on the similarities rather than the differences, that they wouldn't care about the differences. And so that's why he found an infringement. Now we're a few years further on. We understand the marketplace a little more. Video games aren't quite so new anymore. And so we get a complete opposite result, which is, yeah, there's a lot of similarity here, but a discerning game player 
is going to be looking at the differences, not the similarities. So is there some similarity? Sure. But it doesn't matter because it's not creating marketplace confusion. And so this is really where we are today. This is why you can have clones that are pretty, pretty darn close to other games today. Because there's a recognition that when a person is choosing the game that they want to play, they're looking at the totality. They're looking at the slickness of the controls, the beauty of the graphics, the challenge of the gameplay. There's so many things that they're looking for. So if something is substantially similar, it's not necessarily causing harm to the copyright holder, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And this creates a little interesting problem of, I know in law that you have the desire to have precedent. Mm -hmm. We have a precedent before of, okay, this isn't allowed. And we had something that was fairly significantly different. And then now we're saying something that's fairly similar is now allowable and not different enough. So we have almost like two contradictory cases here. We do. And they were in different circuits, I believe. I believe that the Atari North American Phillips case came up in the Seventh Court of Appeals uh, was the appellate jurisdiction that was hearing the case, because that case, I believe, was heard in Chicago. And the later case, the Epics Data East case, was heard in California or some such. So it was the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that made the ruling. So the one didn't overturn the other because it's different circuits. This kind of thing never went to the Supreme Court. Something in the Supreme Court would override all the federal appellate circuits. So it was two different circuits reaching different opinions. There was really no need to adjudicate further because really, over time, all of the courts and all of the circuits really went the way of the Ninth Circuit in this. So there didn't continue to be a contradiction that the Supreme Court would say have to sort out. This is kind of where we are. And I'm, I'm not a legal expert on this, so I don't know exactly where the line is. But basically, because of this Data East Epics case, the line is drawn pretty loosely. Like, it would take a lot of similarity. I mean, a whole, 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 whole lot. Like, virtually the same game. Practically, the defense commander versus defender kind of similarity in order to make something that would result in market confusion. The idea here is that if video games play sufficiently differently or look sufficiently differently, even if there's some derivation from a previous game, people are going to like this game for these reasons and that game for that reasons, and it's not creating a a situation where the creator of the original game is losing sales to people that are confused or think that it's the same thing. And that's why we have things like you have Minecraft becoming very popular and then you have all the clones of Minecraft, Cubecraft, and right. so on and so forth, where it's all practically the same game, just different enough. Exactly. And so the courts, after that Casey Munchkin case, after that North American Phillips case where they went the one way, the courts have been pretty forgiving in a completely ironic twist. This isn't a case worth going into. In a completely ironic twist, when Street Fighter 2 came out, Data East released a game called Fighter's History that was very, very similar to Street Fighter 2. And so Capcom sued. The court ruled in Data East's favor because it was a similar situation to this case. But I just think it's funny that in this case, Data East got saved by a judicial interpretation that they had initially fought against several years earlier. 
It is kind of funny. <laughs> so that's kind of where we are on that aspect of copyright. The other aspect of copyright, which I brought up earlier, is the concept of a derivative work. A derivative work is kind of a work that is a direct offspring of an original work. So if you have a book in English and you're translating it into French, the French translation is a derivative work. Because even though it's different language, it's conveying the same expression using just a slightly different format. It's building off of that. So like a translation would be a derivative work. A musical arrangement is a derivative work. Just because you have a song, like Row, Row, Row Your Boat, there are a lot of different ways you can decide to mark that up. You can have it be faster or slower. You can have it be louder or softer. You can have a different rhythm to the song. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Right. (laughs) Just speeding it up wouldn't be enough. But if you're like changing it so that it's uh, a different rhythm or that kind of thing. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Exactly. That's a, uh, a derivative work. And then, you know, kind of probably the most common form of derivative work that we think of today is if you have a book like Lord of the Rings and you adapt it into a movie like the trilogy of movies Peter Jackson made. The one is derivative of the other because it doesn't exist independently of the original work. It's taking a work that was expressed in one way and taking it and expressing it just in a different medium or a different style, etc. That's a derivative work. Or the Super Mario Brothers movie being a derivative work of the Super Mario Brothers game. You know that this means that we now have to put something related to the Super Mario Brothers movie into the show notes and yes. make everybody sad just because you had to bring it up during this podcast. I know. I'm just a glutton for making everyone suffer. <laughs> but yes, the Super Mario Brothers movie would be a completely, utterly, and totally reprehensible derivation of the Super Mario Brothers video game series. And now we can all cry. Well, excuse me, princess. Oh, and now we have to put the Legend of Zelda cartoon in for the same reason. Good job, Jeffrey. Good job. <laughs> So, you may recall that back at the beginning I mentioned that Arctic, this kit company, was involved in two different cases. We talked about the one already, related to Defense Command or Defense Commander or whatever it was. The other one related to a speed-up kit. I talked about that earlier in the episode. That's when you create a board that you piggyback on top of another board to modify the game, to change the graphics, or to make it harder or to speed it up or slow it down. You're modifying something that's already there. On its face, that may sound like a derivative work, right? Yes. Just as as we already described it. And obviously the video game companies don't want this because the main manufacturers, they want to sell you a game. Then three months later, when everyone gets tired of it, they want to sell you another game. That's how they make money, selling new games. But if other companies start making enhancement kits for their pre-existing games, then people will stop buying new games from the manufacturer and instead will just buy all of these add-on boards to change the games that are already there. And nobody wants that. I mean, the manufacturers themselves don't want to make the add-on boards themselves because they want to sell you a brand new game. 
especially in this time period. You know, kits are not in style in this time period. So they don't want to sell you a speed up kit. They want to sell you a whole new cabinet. They make more money on that. So none of the manufacturers want this add on board thing at all. And so, of course, they start suing and they start suing based on this concept of derivative works. That's how they're trying to stop these enhancement kits from occurring. So once again, it's our friends Arctic that are involved in the landmark case here. This time, it's our buddies Midway, makers of Space Invaders and Galaxian and Pac-Man and whatnot in the United States. All Japanese games, but they're the importer. Arctic tried to argue that their kit, all it was doing was speeding up the game. This particular kit, all it was doing was speeding it up. And so Arctic was arguing that it was no different than changing the speed on your record player. You know, back in the day, you had records and you had RPM, revolutions per minute, and different records of different sizes, 78s, 45s, 33s, etc., were played at different RPMs. And so your record player was able to adjust RPMs. And if you played a 33, like a 78, then it would completely change the character of the sound because you're going faster or slower than what that record's meant to be played at. So, you know, you get, if it's faster, you get like the chipmunk effect. That's how you get the, the chipmunks doing their thing. Their argument was they have not created a derivative work because it's the exact same game. Because in this case, they're not changing graphics or anything. They're just speeding it up. So it's the exact same game. They haven't changed the expression within that arcade cabinet. But it's just like if you speed up your phonograph and then your record goes really, really fast. It's the same thing. It's the user changing the way that you experience the expression. It's not changing the expression itself. So says Arctic International. The court basically took a practical approach to this and basically said, okay, that's fine, except there's no market for speeded up phonographs. Nobody out there is looking to play all their records faster. There might be somebody that has fun with it for a few minutes or something, but there isn't a market for speeded up phonographs. Most people that want their music to just play at the speed that the music's supposed to be played at, right? And the judge basically says, you know, there's not a market for that, but there's a market for these speed up boards. And these speed up boards are interacting with an expression created by somebody else. So basically, it's almost a common sense kind of, I know it when I see it approach. It's like this is a derivative work because you're selling something that changes the experience and it's something that people want. And if it's something that people want, it means it's something that people are going to buy. And therefore, it must be a derivative work because there's a market for it. I mean, it's kind of circular reasoning. It's not really a legal argument, so to speak. But there's money involved. Therefore, it's a derivative. I mean, that's kind of what's going on here. The most famous maker of these speed up boards was uh, the General Computer Corporation. These are the guys that ended up making Ms. Pac-Man. Ms. Pac-Man instantly is an add-on board to the original Pac-Man, licensed properly. But General Computer Corporation created a speed-up for Missile Command called Super Missile Attack. And they were sued by Atari for this. And that case ended up settling. Atari decided not to go to court on it. So that could have been an interesting case to further test the waters on what's appropriate in add-on boards. But because that case was settled, and then GCC went on to only make boards with permission as part of their settlement, that one kind of never got tested again, but they were already working on a Pac-Man board that would alter the graphics, alter the characters, alter the look of the game in addition to the gameplay when Atari sued them. And that's the game that ultimately became Ms. Pac-Man, though the 
add-on board they were working at initially and the final product of Ms. Pac-Man are actually very different. But that was kind of the beginning of that. And so if Crazy Auto, which is what they were calling their Pac-Man add-on at the time, had been released, that would have been an interesting legal case to see. Certainly. But it wasn't. So that's kind of where that stood. So the add-on board thing kind of died quickly from a legal perspective. That doesn't mean people weren't still making unauthorized boards. But from a legal perspective, the idea of the add-on or enhancement died pretty quickly as a derivative work. So this is why you don't have unauthorized companies like if you have doom and then you have a company releasing 50 new maps for the doom engine that kind of stuff has to be licensed too i mean those things existed but theoretically they had to be licensed because that would be a derivative work because you're taking a pre-existing expression and you're adding on to it using the original as a base and so that's that's derivative so my d zone cd behind me is a derivative work. Exactly. Now, we did test the limits of the derivative work idea because then in the early 90s, a little thing called the Game Genie came along. Everyone likes that thing. (laughs) Who wants a nice glorified hex editor? Exactly. Game Genie was created by a company called Codemasters, which was a British... Uh, started as a British budget game company, making cheap games that you sold for cheap prices, and then kind of branched out into doing less budgety stuff as time went on, and then decided that they wanted to be on the NES, but they didn't get a license. They decided to reverse engineer and put stuff out themselves. They had some hardware people, and so they did some unlicensed NES stuff, but then they also decided to use that hardware expertise that they had gained during this process to create the Game Genie, which, like you said, is a glorified hex editor. It looks through the memory of the game and changes certain values within the memory in order to change what's occurring in the game. So they figure out which part of the memory determines whether getting hit results in a loss of life or a death. And they turn that off so you're invincible. They figure out where in the memory the number of lives you have are stored. And then they put in a code that changes that to 99. Or they go in and figure out the place that controls the frame rate of your gunshots. And they change it to lower that frame rate so that suddenly you can shoot really rapidly and really fast. You know, they find values within the memory and then change the values in the memory. Nintendo was not happy about this at all. The reason Nintendo was not happy about the Game Genie is because in those days, of course, games were shorter than they are today and oftentimes more intensely action-driven. They were expensive. Games were very expensive back then on cartridge hardware, more expensive than they are today when you adjust for inflation. We're talking about 1990s dollars, and we would spend roughly $60 a game. Mm -hmm. Sometimes even as much as 70 or 80. Yeah, I think when I got my copy of Roger Rabbit, bought it brand new for my birthday, I think that was probably about $70. Right, and that was in, like, 1990s money. So, I mean, games were substantially more expensive back then. Games, just because of limitations of memory, games were also much shorter back then. The way that they gave play value, the way that they got you to justify spending so much money on an action game was by making them difficult enough that it took time to get good at them 
and you had to spend a lot of time dying, replaying, progressing, getting a sense of accomplishment, moving forward, finally beating the game. Nintendo hard. Exactly. Part of that is just because these companies had arcade roots and they didn't know how to do anything else, but part of it was also that that was the way you did replay value in a time period where you couldn't stuff as much stuff in a cartridge. So Nintendo feared that if you had a cheating device like the game Genie that allowed you to be invincible or gave you lots of lives or made you stronger, etc., that you would breeze through games very quickly and then you would feel you didn't get your value out of the game. It's like, what, this is all there was? It took me like half an hour to beat this game I just paid 70 bucks for. That's lame. And then they'll stop buying Nintendo games because they lose all interest in them. I don't think Nintendo should be dictating how people decide to enjoy their games. So I don't think that's a good argument, but I can at least, I can see the argument. It's not an irrational. You can appreciate it. Yeah, it's not an irrational argument. I don't think it's a good one, but it's not irrational. It brings up a valid point from their perspective. Mm-hmm. So Galoob, the toy company Galoob, most famous for micro machines, is the company that actually manufactured and released the Game Genie in the United States. So Nintendo sued Galoob over the Game Genie. And the argument that they tried to use was that the Game Genie created a derivative work, that this was similar to an add-on board that makes the game faster. If you're, quote-unquote, creating a game through this add-on, the Game Genie, that you strap the cartridge to and then strap into the Nintendo system, that you are creating a derivative work that is different from the expression that was created by the original company. And therefore, it is subject to copyright as a derivative work, and the company that owns the copyright has legal grounds to stop you from creating this work. In other words, you can't sell the Game Genie because you're breaking copyright law. In this case, obviously, because we all have fond memories of typing in strings of code into our Game Genies, and for later generations, things like Game Sharks and action replays and whatnot, In this case, obviously, the court found in favor of Galoob and decided that that was not a derivative work. The reason for that, and the reason it can be distinguished, this is not a situation like Casey Munchkin versus Epics, where basically opinion changed over time. The reason that the Game Genie can be distinguished from something like the speed-up kit that Arctic released for the Midway game is that a derivative work in and of itself also has to incorporate a portion of the work protected by copyright in some kind of concrete and permanent form. If you put a speed-up board on top of an arcade game, that daughter board is going to take control of certain portions of the game, replace certain portions of the original game, and make the game play a certain different way every time. Once that board is in there, the game is always going to play that way from now on until such time as you take that board back out again and restore it to its original state. But with a Game Genie cartridge, every time you boot up the system, you have to manually type in the code you want. Otherwise, you can just leave the thing in there and have it put no codes in there and then play the game as normal. Right. The Game Genie itself is not creating a game. The Game Genie itself is not actually altering the original game. All it's doing 
is serving as a pass-through and setting certain values to change the way the game plays. But no original code from the game is altered or destroyed in the process. The game itself always still plays the same way. It's only a temporary change that you make by editing. Which you have to put in every single time the thing boots. Exactly. So in this case, it's not a derivative work because you're not actually creating something new that is permanent. And you're also not selling a brand new game. They kind of distinguish from Arctic by saying that, you know, there's no game stored on the Game Genie. The Game Genie itself doesn't contain any game code. If you put in a Game Genie all by itself, it won't do anything. I mean, it's load up screen will come up or whatever, but you know it. And you can write like a, a little short story. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's not actually a game. They're not selling a game product in the same way that an add-on board is a game product. So they kind of distinguished Arctic in that way, too. But the main thing was that the game gen- genie is not permanently altering a game or permanently altering code or permanently overwriting code. It's just a temporary kind of thing. Yeah. That's why that's not a derivative work, and so that's why you can have software editors of various types, and those are not going to violate copyright, because you're not actually permanently changing the game, you're just changing values temporarily or whatever. Fun. So that's, uh, that's kind of an overview of copyright. Obviously, there are other copyright issues that we're not going to get into in this episode because there are not really so much landmark video game cases per se involved in them. I mean, obviously, there's fair use issues when it comes to things like distributing mods or showing gameplay footage in a YouTube video or whatnot. But most of that kind of thing is really governed more by fair use law generally, and there haven't necessarily been landmark video game court cases. There's emulation. Emulation is something we could certainly get into, but uh, that's its whole other thing. I mean, the short answer is that, you know, an emulator itself doesn't violate copyright because if you reverse engineered everything, then you've legally created what you've created. So an emulator itself doesn't violate copyright law. A ROM, of course, is a protected work and a ROM is an exact copy of Mm -hmm. the original work. So uh, a ROM is not a legal thing to have except for certain fair use exceptions like having an ar- one archival backup copy of something you already own. That kind of fair use exception. But there's not really much to say about emulation because that's pretty black and white because that's, that's an exact, a ROM is an exact copy of the work. And an exact copy is always protected by copyright law. So um, emulation is obviously a big copyright area too, but it's not an area that's really been litigated in an interesting way. So there's not much to say there. Those cases, though, that we talked about kind of are the way that you built up this idea that it's not just the code that's copyrightable. It's also the fixed expression, which is the audiovisual experience you have when playing a game. That is also protectable. It's the destination, not the journey. But clones are generally okay as long as they're not too close a copy because... Substantial similarity requires some degree of consumer confusion that the courts have ruled doesn't exist in most places uh, when it comes to in most cases when it comes to video games. Derivative works. Modifying a game is bad if it's a permanent modification that you're making to the game. But if it's something like a hex editor that just makes a temporary modification, it's okay. The only other wrinkle to that that's a little bit interesting and we won't spend much time on it is. Japan kind of had to go through the same process a little bit, but Japan had to go one step further. 
Because in Japan, unlike in the United States, computer code was not copyrightable. Computer code was not protected. So part of the reason that Space Invaders was just flat out copied by everyone in existence in Japan is you didn't even have to reverse engineer it. You could just copy the game, rip it right out of the board. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Because computer code was not copyrightable in Japan. United States, the 1976 copyright law update established that code is protected. So like we said, in the United States, you couldn't rip a Space Invaders board and just put the same thing out. You're using the same code. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Even before they decided that the audiovisual elements were also protected, doing that was a no-no. Japan just had to go one step further. Taito fought it for years, literally years, because it wasn't until 1982 that finally Taito got a ruling from a court saying that computer code was an expression under Japanese copyright law, and therefore you can't do an exact ripoff of code. And then it took them a couple of years longer to get to the same place audiovisually, because just like in the U.S. then, they also had the, okay, the code is protected, but is the audiovisual expression protected? Japan had to reach that conclusion itself, too. I mean, every country is going to have its own laws and courts and, and whatnot. Namco was the one that was finally successful in about 1984 in getting a court to say that, yes, the audiovisual element is also protected. So the same thing that we got to in the Arctic case, where even if the code's different, if it's the if it's pretty much the same game, if it's the exact same game. No, that is protected. Copyright in Asia is always a little bit wonky compared to copyright in the West. Um, I don't know all the details of that, because if I'm not an IP lawyer, I'm definitely not an international lawyer. And since those cases are in Japan, I don't have as much detail on them as the American cases. But I just wanted to point out that Japan had to start from even further back when they were doing their copyright mess, because not even code was protected when the first video games were coming out over there. All right. And then next time, as we uh, already started a little bit with our final case there, we're going to delve specifically into some of the landmark lawsuits with Nintendo. Exactly. As we kind of hinted at the top of the show, uh, Nintendo was a company that was very, very good at using the courts to its advantage. And it's not just that they would sue people when they felt they needed to. It's that they were very good at defending themselves in the court, too. And actually, the cases, even though they certainly sued their fair share of people, the cases that we're going to be looking at are really more cases where Nintendo got sued and, generally speaking, were able to successfully defend themselves. There's definitely enough stuff there involving copyright and antitrust and patent law and kind of all those areas specific to Nintendo. So probably end up looking at kind of four landmark cases there. Uh, Their lawsuit with Universal Pictures over Donkey Kong, lawsuit that they weren't successful in with Alpex, and then the famous antitrust cases that they ended up in with both Atari companies, Atari Games and Atari Corporation. And we already talked a little bit about some of this stuff with Nintendo playing with power one of our previous episodes so give that a listen before you listen to this one if you feel like it and we will delve into whole new areas of lawsuits with the nintendo next time on they create world check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com 
Email us feedback at theycreateworlds.com and follow us on Twitter at TCW Podcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License.